So over the last few um, months, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and more specifically looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And the text for today's sermon is Luke chapter 16, verse 1 to 13. And this is Jesus' parable of the dishonest manager and the, the implications about handling money and possessions uh, generously, faithfully, and for the, the glory of God. So most commentators call this parable the most difficult parable in the Gospel of Luke. And I was relieved when I discovered that because I really did struggle to exegete this passage um, this week. And the, the difficulty is that Jesus seems to be praising a scoundrel. But a careful look at the text reveals that Jesus is not praising the man's crookedness, but rather his shrewdness, his, his cleverness in using a present opportunity to provide for his inev inevitable future needs. Um, Jesus calls this man unrighteous, so he doesn't praise his sin in any way. But he is saying that we can learn a valuable lesson from um, the unrighteous of this world, the pagan scoundrel who is wiser than many um, Christians, many sons of light. So in that, he saw what was coming and he used what had been entrusted to him while he could prepare for the future. So the lesson for us today is about stewardship and about being a faithful steward of what God has given to us as believers um, a faithful steward will use his master's resources wisely to provide true riches for eternity. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 16, we're going to read the first 13 verses about the parable of the dishonest manager. So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master has taken the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please pray with me before we study the word together. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we go through this passage, this very difficult uh, it seems to be very difficult, Lord, but we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts to what your word and your intention is, is for us today. Uh, we pray, Lord, that um, none of your words would fall to the ground today. And we all, Lord, are facing a situation where our finances are tight and uh, we pray that you help us to be wise, help us to be shrewd, and that, um, Lord, we would take the lesson for today and apply it to our own situations for your glory, Lord, and for our good. So we need your help, Lord, and we ask that you would please teach us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I read this week the story about a basketball star who had a terrible view of money. And one season, the star demanded a, a bigger contract from the Minnesota Timberwolves. And, and he told the media that he was disgusted with his one-year $14.6 million contract. And when a reporter asked why he didn't try to help his team win an NBA championship first and then worry about um, getting a better contract, this, is, this was his response. This was his reply. He said, why would I want to help them win a title? They're not doing anything for me. I'm at risk. I have a lot of risk here. I got my family to feed. Well, this basketball star makes $40,000 per day, which is much more than most people per year. And we can see here this star had an improper focus on, on money. And many people do, which causes people to get really skewed about the things that are really important, especially for Christians when we are to be focusing on eternal things and not temporary things. So how are Christians to think about money and possessions? How are money and possessions connected to the gospel? And these practical matters Jesus deals with in the parable of the, the dishonest manager. So my first point this morning is from verse 1 to verse 18, and that is the interpretation of the parable. Let's first look at what the parable means before we look at the application. So notice the setting here. In Luke 15, remember, Jesus is addressing the parable in a chapter to the Pharisees and the scribes. But now in Luke 16, he includes the, the, the disciples. So the disciples, as well as the Pharisees, are listening to Jesus. He says to the disciples in verse 1, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So straight away we see two characters that are presented here in the story. There's a rich man who is very wealthy, and um, there is another, well, we see in verse 6 to verse 7 that he had an enormous amount of money. So 
we see a wealthy man there. And then we see his manager, um, who was wasting the, managers, the, the owner's possessions. He wasn't being faithful. He wasn't being responsible for this rich man's estate. And we see that charges were brought to the rich man about his manager who was wasting his possessions. And of course, the, the owner had to act very quickly. He had to act very decisively. And that's what happens. We see in verse 2. Look at verse 2, if you would, with me. We see the rich man calls his manager and says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the rich man believed the report about the, the manager's mismanagement of his possessions. He believed the charge that somebody had brought against him. And the manager was guilty because we see he doesn't defend himself against the charges. And in addition, uh, Jesus says in verse 18 that he was a dishonest manager. So his, his character or his actions are, are not in question here. Uh, but notice, interesting, Jesus did not specify what um, the manager had done wrong, other than to say that he was dishonest. Um, so we see what happens. The, the rich man fires the manager, and he demands that his manager turn in the account of all of his management. So the manager knew that, that when he turned over the books to this rich man, everything would be discovered. All the extent of his financial mismanagement would be seen by everybody which leads to his response in verse 3. Here we see the, the manager's response from verse 3 to verse 7. Look there. He says in verse 3, And the manager says to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. So we see here that the manager found himself with a major problem. A major problem. He had... Uh, lost his desk job where he was quite happily um, working comfortably behind the desk. Um, he was not strong enough to, to dig ditches. And he surely didn't want to beg. He was too ashamed to beg. So what was he to do? What was he to do? Well, we see he comes up with a creative scheme in verse 4. It was almost like an like a aha moment. Um, look at verse 4. He says to himself, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So knowing that he did not have a lot of time on his hands, he, he summons all his master's debtors one by one. And he speaks to them. Look at verse 5. Speaking to his master's debtors individually was important because he did not want them to communicate with each other. He didn't want them um, knowing what he had done. And so he says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? Well, the first debtor said, a hundred measures of oil, which is over 3,000 liters of oil. So he says to him, take your bill, quickly sit down and write 50. So he almost cut the, the debt in half. And then he said to, to the second person, how much do you owe? And um, he said, a hundred measures of, of wheat, which was between 1,000 and, and 2,000 uh, bushels of, 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 of wheat. So he said, 
Well, take your bill and, and write 80. And he cut his debt by almost 20%. So presumably, the manager reduced the debt of each one of his, his master's debtors. We see that. But the debtors would have been very happy to have received this significant reduction of their debts. And they weren't arguing about this. They were happy to do this. And the manager was really trying to make sure that, that when he was out of work, the debtors would be personally indebted to him. And they would treat him well afterwards. And they would speak well about him. Um, so although it was dishonest, it was, it was clever. It was shrewd in what he was doing. But notice the, the master's commendation. Look at verse 8. So Jesus says in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, he says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That word shrewdness simply means cleverness. So the rich man may have been angry with his manager, but all of his, his debtors were overjoyed that their debts had been reduced, and the rich man could have created massive problems for him um, if he had gone to the debtors himself and told them what had happened, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he, he reinstates this, this manager. And the rich man had to admire this dishonest manager for his, his shrewdness. This is, one, this is what one commentator says about this. He says, Though the rich man could hardly credit the man for his honesty or integrity, when it came to shrewdness, he had to give the man his due. There is a legitimate moral difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly, and saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. And the master was saying the latter, not the former. And this is the key to understanding the parable. The master was not commending him for his sin, but he was commending him for his cleverness, his his shrewdness. And Jesus is not endorsing dishonesty in this parable at all. Of course, that would contradict everything else that Jesus was preaching and teaching. Jesus was not endorsing sin. He was not saying that it was fine to, to cheat people. He was not approving sin. Instead, Jesus was giving an example of how Shrewdly, non-Christians can be when they act in their own best interests. And if you've had any experience in the financial world, you can attest to that. You can attest to that just by our own examples. And that is what Jesus meant when he says in the next part of verse 8, look at the second part of verse 8. He says, for the sons of this world. So that's talking about non-Christians, unbelievers. For the unbelievers of this world are more shrewd, are more clever in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And the sons of light are Christians. So Jesus' remark is that those of the world, the, the sons of this world, they give more thought, they give more foresight to their to their future. They think more about it. They are more shrewd in their, their dealings with people than God's children are. And God's children 
should be wise. We should be shrewd with the possessions that we have. Not so that we can um, gain riches for ourselves, and we will see that now. But rather so that we can honor God and we can extend His kingdom. But we need to act with foresight, and we need to act with charity, and we need to act with love. And those are the, the implications which we see now in the, in the second part of this parable. So my second point is the implications of the parable. And we see that in verse 9 to verse 13. So Jesus moves away from the, the story, from the parable itself, and he makes three applications here for, for us to learn from. And I've got three, three of those um, subheadings that we're going to look at now. The first one is in verse 9. The first one is in verse 9. We are to be generous with our money. That is the, the message that the Lord is giving here. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. At face value, this seems to be um, very complicated, very, uh, very out of character to, to what Jesus would normally teach. But Jesus means here that, that just as, the, remember the context. If you read that verse out of context, it doesn't make sense. But we have the parable before to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus means that just as the unrighteous steward used his master's money to make friends for himself, so that when he got fired, he would welcome, um, they would welcome him into their homes. So we, so we Christians should use our master's money to make friends for ourselves in heaven, our eternal home, where we will be going one day, where we are all going one day. Um, some commentators, they interpret the word they there to refer to God and his angels. But, but I think it refers to the friends who have become Christians because of our faithful stewardship. You think about that. All the, the money we've invested in as a church into people in different parts of this world for the sake of the gospel. One day we'll get to meet them in heaven. Those are the people that, that we will be able to be friends with because of our investment that we've made with our resources now on this earth. And, and what the Lord is saying is when, when earthly riches fail, and we know they will, we know even our, our bodies will fail and all of the riches that we have accrued cannot change that. As much health care and, and as much health insurance that we have, that will never change the fact that, that we will all die. But when we die, we will have friends in heaven who are there because we gave to the cause of Christ for world missions and for world evangelization. And each of us must ask ourselves this, this sober question. How are we managing God's resources? Am I managing the resources God has entrusted to us um, to give an account someday in light of of his kingdom, in light of his purposes, 
in light of Him being glorified among all the nations through the, the spreading of the gospel. Are we doing that with our resources? Is that our main intention? God is a generous and gracious Father. We know that. And He gives to us not only enough for our basic needs, but also for us to enjoy, for even our entertainment. So it's not wrong to enjoy many things beyond the, the bare essentials. I'm not saying we have to go live in a cave and, and live on one dirham a month. That, that's not what this passage is saying. But if, but if, consider this for a moment, if we grasp the concept of faithful stewardship and accountability, our focus will not be on our own financial success. Our focus will not be about building bigger and better bonds for ourselves. Our focus will not be on our own bank account, but rather on the financial success of God's enterprise. I'm talking specifically about the gospel. Are we investing generously into the gospel, into the work of the gospel? J.C. Ryle, one of my famous, well, one of my favorite um, authors, he says this about this passage. He says, A right use of our money in this world from right motives will be for our benefit in the world to come. It will not justify us. In other words, it will not get us into heaven. It will not bear the severity of God's judgment any more than any other good works. But it shall be an evidence of our grace which shall befriend our souls. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Our generosity is evidence of our salvation. That's, that's what he's saying here. Our generosity is evidence of our faith in God to provide for us. So rather than storing things for ourselves in our bank account, we are generous to provide and to give. We are not these dams that, that collect the stagnant water, but rather we are these these streams that are rushing this living water to the world that needs it. So we see the second application in verse 10 to verse 12, and that is that we are to be faithful stewards. We are to be faithful in our stewardship. Look at verse 10. Jesus states this principle quite clearly. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And then he follows with two questions that, that really flesh out this principle in verse 11 and 12. He says, And then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So sometimes people say that they would give more to God's work if only they had more money to give. And I've heard that over and over again. I, I don't have enough. I don't earn enough. I can't give. But we cannot afford not to give. That's what the Lord is saying here. We cannot afford not to give. If we are truly Christians and if we are truly depending on God, 
we cannot afford not to give. I, heard a, I read a story this week of a man who came to a pastor with a concern that he had about tithing. And he said to the pastor, I have a problem. You know, I have been tithing for some time. And it wasn't too bad because I was making $20,000 a year. So I could afford to give 10%. I could afford to give $2,000 a year. But you see, I'm now making $500,000 a year. And there is just no way that I can afford to, to give away $50,000 a year to the, the Lord's work. So the pastor reflected on this wealthy man's dilemma. And he didn't give any advice initially. He simply said to this man, I see that you have a problem. I think that we ought to pray about it. Is that all right with you? So the man agreed. So the pastor bowed his head and prayed with boldness and authority. And this was the pastor's prayer. He said, Dear Lord, this man has a problem. And I pray that you will help him. Lord, reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe again. That's a true story. That's a true story. I've left out the names. But isn't that sad? The man had less. He was willing to, to tithe. But as soon as his salary increased, he became more and more greedy. He became more and more aware of the money in his bank account and less and less willing to give for the sake of Christ. Now one, again, J.C. Ryle, he says, the doctrine is, or the teaching is, that he who is dishonest and unfaithful in the discharge of his duties on earth must not expect to have heavenly treasure, or he mustn't assume even to be saved. With even greater conviction, he says, let the disciples remember that unfaithfulness in money transactions is a sure evidence of a rotten state of their souls. Remember who Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing the disciples. He's addressing those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have given up the world to follow him. And this message is for those who claim to be Christians, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. If we have a problem with our money, we have a problem with our souls. If we are not willing to give our money for the sake of Christ, then we are these dams that are just storing up our resources and it's just getting stagnant and it's just becoming um, stinky, rotten water that is useless for anybody. And that is a sign of our hearts, isn't it? Well, we see the third implication here, the third application in verse 13. And the third application is that we are to serve God. We are to serve God as our master, not money. Money is not our master, God is. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's no middle ground here, is there, folks? There's no middle ground. It's either or. 
Um, there's, a, there's a note in the ESV study Bible that, that puts it very well. It says, Jesus does not say, should not serve, but it says, cannot serve. You should not serve God and money. That's not the option here. It says, you cannot serve God and money. That's what the, the Bible is implicitly and explicitly saying. We struggle with money because, you know, there's, there's a need for money. Um, we need money to live, and we need um, money to survive. But the Scriptures tell us the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is evil in and of itself. It's the love of money. When we start to love money and serve money, then money becomes our master. And that's the problem here that the Lord is exposing. Money is enticing, isn't it? It's alluring. And if we do not learn how to master our money, it will eventually become our master. And that's why the scriptures tell us this morning, let us serve one master and let that master be God. I remember years ago watching a, a TV game show on television as a child. And the contestants were told to choose between a prize that was, that was visible to them or another prize that was concealed behind a, behind a curtain. And often the, the visible prize was, was quite nice. Perhaps it was a, a new TV or a new um, stereo. Um, you could see it visibly. And the audience would always urge the contestant to go for the prize behind the, the curtain. But sometimes the unseen prize would turn out to be some small impractical gag, like a, like a 10,000 box um, of toothpicks or um, a bar of soap or, or something very, very small. And of course, the contestants would groan as, as he realized he just traded a beautiful prize for, for something useless, something that was of less value. At other times, however, the prize behind the, the curtain would be something of greater value than, than what he could see, um, such, as a, such as a new car. So you never knew what was behind the, the curtain. And if the contestant chose the visible prize of just a, a new TV or a new, new stereo, he forfeited the, the brand new car that he couldn't see behind the curtains. And you could feel the awful sense that he had made a foolish decision. But the difference between that game show and the reality that, that we live in is that God has promised that what is hidden behind the curtain is so much better than what we could possibly think or imagine or what we can see. What is behind the curtain, what we cannot see, the invisible kingdom of God is so much better than what we can see on this earth. And 1 Corinthians tells us that, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. All for those who love Him. The question is, Will you believe God? Will you live by faith in His promises? Will you live 
expecting things that we cannot see so that we can honor God rather than looking at the things that we can see? Will you give up the, the temporary riches that you will lose anyway by investing them in, in the kingdom of God with his promise that you will, in, that you will inherit eternal riches that, that you can never lose? You know, the coronavirus has created a tremendous amount of fear um, and anxiety and, and affliction for, for thousands of people around the world. And it is, has been affecting every area of our lives. And I think the stewardship of our money and our possessions is one of these very important areas that has been affected. Now, we have all seen how unbelievers first responded to this outbreak when they when you see clips of these people going to the, to the supermarkets and buying as much as possible, um, unconcerned for others' well-being, even knocking people over, even grabbing toilet paper out of their, their hands just so that they could stock for themselves their own supplies. And the virus has exposed our, our hearts in many ways. The virus has exposed to people what is important to them. And of course, the virus has required us to change even our, our social behavior for the sake of those who are, are vulnerable amongst us. And I think the same should be true when it comes to our economic behavior. And I've seen it happen for good in the church. I've seen it happen for good in the church. Now, there are people in our church who have given up temporal riches to be a blessing to others during this pandemic. Now, some people have even used their their savings to buy grocery hampers for people in need every month. And people who have had two bars of soap left in the cupboard have given the first one away to, to people in need. Now Greg told me that our, our giving for 2019, for January to September, came to 580,000 dirhams. Now, the total giving for this year, for January to September, is 551,000 dirhams. And that's excluding all the, the offerings we receive for, for Pedro's internship. And this is during the pandemic. You know, considering so many people in New Life Church have had to face um, pay cuts and even some have, have lost their jobs, our tithes and our offerings have not gone down too much. And I would like to think the, the reason for that is because many of us understand the importance of investing in God's kingdom and not wasting our finances on temporal riches that will be, be lost anyway. I think the church is uniquely positioned to, to thrive under these circumstances that we find ourselves in. And it's only if we remember to live with eternity in view. And if we are willing to be faithful stewards, using the resources that God has entrusted to us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, not to store it for ourselves. But to do so, if, if we are going to continue to be a vessel used for God's honor and for God's glory, we need to make sure that we are having a love for the lost, that we have compassion upon 
those in this world who are dying in their sins. We need to make sure that we are being obedient to the cause of Christ, obedient to the Great Commission, obedient to the, to the gospel call. Now let's make sure that New Life Church is being known for our love in these difficult times and not for our selfishness. Let's make sure that we're being known for our love for the gospel, our love for the lost, and, and our love for the, the glory of God amongst the nations. It's not that we can give enough to get into heaven. Please don't misunderstand this parable. Please don't misunderstand me this morning. We can't pay our way into heaven. Heaven is God's gift. It's freely available through the, the death of Christ who paid the penalty for the sins of all who will receive him. And if you think that any amount of good works will, will get you into heaven, you don't understand the gospel. You can get into heaven only by understanding and acknowledging that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. That you are a sinner and entrusting Christ as your Savior from, from sin and judgment. But the message this morning was for those who have believed in faith, this message. And if you haven't, I would urge you to come and speak to me. Come and or write to me. Let, 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 let me show you from the Bible how you can be saved. How you can know for sure that you are living for God's glory. And not for your own temporal blessings. But if you have received God's gift of eternal life. The message for you this morning is that we must live with God as our master. Not mammon. Not the earthly riches of this world. We are to live for God's glory. And the question we need to all ask ourselves this morning is, am I living as a faithful steward, shrewdly, cleverly using the resources that God has entrusted to us to lay up treasures in heaven? Are we really doing that? Are we doing it sincerely? Are we doing it enough? Or have we slipped into squandering God's resources for our own purposes? Losing sight of the fact that, that eternity is quickly approaching. And we will give an account. We know that the time is soon coming when the mammon of unrighteousness will fail. We will die or Christ will return and money won't do us any good in heaven. But we can use our money now to store up treasures in heaven by making eternal friends through the gospel. Now, can you imagine the joy someday of, of meeting someone in heaven who says, Thank you for giving to missions. Thank you for giving to the cause of, of world evangelization. It's because you gave. Missionaries came to my country. Missionaries came to my village. And I receive Christ. Thank you. Can you imagine that joy? I want to encourage you this morning. This lesson from this scoundrel is for us, is for Christians. We are to invest our master's money in that which will pay eternal dividends. For God's glory and for our joy. Pray with me this morning.
Thank you, Lord, for money. Thank you, Lord, for the resources that you give us. We know everything that we have is from you. And these are great blessings to us, Lord. And we remember today that it all comes from you. And forgive us, Lord, for thinking that, that our salaries are from ourselves, from our own efforts. Forgive us for thinking that our own money in our bank account is because of, of our experience or, or cleverness. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that, that we are the masters of our own destiny. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to use our money wisely. Help us to use our money to bless the people that you put around us. Help us to build connections so that we can strengthen relationships with unbelievers and, and watch for opportunities to spread your love to others so that your gospel message may cross into other lives and, and bring people into your family. Lord, please, we pray that you'll help us to be good managers. Help us to be shrewd. Help us to be wise. And help us to be aware of what is truly important in your kingdom. For the sake of your great name, Lord, for the fame of your name across this world, we ask this prayer. In Jesus, our Master. Amen.